everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. So today we are going to go to Connecticut, but before we do, we wanted to take a moment and thank our listeners in Trussville, Alabama. So we have a, a large following down there, right, Trish? I don't know if I'd say large, but I mean, we ha- we're in the teens. I think Large we have- for us. Large for us. Yes. And we don't know who again, who you are specifically. We just know the location. So thank you, Trussville. Yes, thank you. So if you haven't checked us out, please go to criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. That is our website. And tech support, aka my husband, has really been putting a lot of time into it to make it very interactive. So give us a shout out on it. There is a contact page. I think he'd like some positive feedback on how his work looks. But you can find all of our episodes, all of our show notes. Also, like I said, a contact page there. And it has a rundown of all the podcast platforms that you can listen to us on. Of course, we have iTunes, Google Play, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In. Did I miss any? I don't think so. Not right now. We're still waiting on Pandora. (laughs) (laughs) Hold your seats. (laughs) Yeah. Pandora and uh, iHeartRadio too, possibly. Soon. Hopefully. Well, we've been saying that for a while now. So maybe someday we'll actually say, yay, we're on. So are you ready to go to Connecticut? I am ready. I've been to the state of Connecticut. Have you? I think I've driven through it. Really? Oh, no. I've been up there. It's beautiful, especially in the fall. The fall is just gorgeous. It's got the leaf changes like here. It does. The crisp air, the leaf changes. It's very nice. So we're going to November 20th. 2014. And we're specifically in Simsbury, Connecticut, which is a suburb of the Hartford area. It was a cold night and Melissa Milan was taking her nightly run. Now, this was a very normal occurrence for Melissa as she was an avid runner and actually competed in triathlons as well. What? No, I'm just shaking my head. I don't like to run. (laughs) I can just not even, no. You don't like to run ever? Not unless I'm being chased. (laughs) Or to the fridge to get some ice. Not even that. It's a slow stroll. So she was a runner. She was 54 at the time and the mother of two children. She was also the senior vice president at Mass Mutual Life Insurance. So she was an executive, a successful businesswoman. She was divorced at this time, but apparently everything was somewhat amicable, just living her life. She's described as as a loving mother, a kind person, and an excellent businesswoman. So there weren't really people that had anything bad to say about her. She was the complete package. Yeah. She was running down Iron Horse Road, and this is actually a running and bike path. And to one side, there's trees. And then on the other side is a road. And there's a little bit of a guardrail. I think it's wooden part of the way. So it's a very popular path for running and biking. And there's sort of parks around. And it's a common area for people to be. It's not crowded, but again, it's popular and it's well lit most of the way. Around 8 o'clock after running about 2.3 miles, someone came onto the path and attacked her, stabbing her once in the chest. Melissa fell over the guardrail between the path and the road and was left lying in the road. She was found there by a passing car who called the police and an ambulance. She was still alive when she was found, but she was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. So prior to the medical examiner's findings, police believed that it had actually been a hit and run because they didn't see the evidence of the stabbing right away. But the medical examiner did confirm that she had been stabbed once in the chest. The police didn't have much to go on. There were no witnesses, no DNA was found at the scene, and the knife wasn't left behind. There was no trace of this killer. Milan had divorced her husband, like I said, around 2012, and she had been ordered to pay him $8,000 a month in alimony. But police quickly ruled him out as a suspect, so I didn't get many details on how they ruled him out, whether he had a solid alibi or what 
was behind that. I was just too shocked by $8,000 a month in alimony. So yeah, I'm not sure what his, his reasoning would be. If you're getting $8,000 a month, you don't want to kill the golden goose. Yeah, I wish I had $8,000 a month in alimony. I wish somebody would just give me, not even alimony, <laughs> you'd have to be divorced. Well, yeah, but for $8,000 a month? Oh. No, just kidding. I love my husband those days. So police also looked into her work life, thinking that she may have been targeted due to sensitive information that she had in the business world. She had information available to her working in these insurances, she had details on businesses that most people wouldn't have access to, but no leads came from this search. About six months after the murder, police shared that they had some out-of-state leads and that the FBI was assisting with the investigation, but they wouldn't specify what the leads were and nothing really came of it. They continued to follow any leads they could find and conducted multiple searches around the area looking for the knife or any other evidence that, that may pop up. But the case soon went cold. An anonymous donor offered $40,000 to anyone giving information leading to an arrest, but still nothing came through. And we never find out who, I get it, anonymous is anonymous, but we never find out who the anonymous donor is? No, I couldn't find anywhere where they divulged that information. They are truly anonymous. And I don't know if it was ever awarded to anyone. Oh, I was going to ask that. So we're going to fast forward to four years later in September of 2018, and we're going to meet somebody named William Winters Leverett. He was 27 at the time and working as an assistant manager at the Fresh Market in Avon, Connecticut, which is, again, in the suburb area of Hartford. And he had been living there since 2011. Earlier in 2011, he had been convicted of sexually assaulting a child, and this happened in 2009, while he was living in Colorado. A few months after his sentencing of only probation, 10 years probation, and a $6,500 fine, he moved to Simsbury to live with his grandparents, and that was in August of 2011, which 10 years probation for sexual assault of a child. Did he get any type of like court ordered or court mandated counseling or electronic monitoring? Or did he fall under like, I don't know, in other states, Megan's law? Is that federal? I know here in Pennsylvania, we have Megan's law, where if you're a convicted sex offender, you have to register and you have to, when you move into an area, notify the police of a change of address. And I think there's a website where you can check, which is really creepy, of the people living near you that have ever been convicted of sex offenses. Don't do it. But I don't know if he, if this was something that he had to do. Yes. So he did have to register change of address and he had to, the police had to know where he was at all times. Well, he'd have to transfer his probation too. Yes. So yes, all of that happened and he transferred to Connecticut. And when he moved to the neighborhood, his grandfather, who was a poet by profession, sent a letter to all the neighbors explaining that his grandson was on the sex offenders registry, but that William had just made a mistake and it was a misunderstanding stating that he was really harmless. So so again, the reason behind this letter, I'm sure, is because people go on those websites and see, hey, the neighbor kid is actually a sex offender. So he was trying to make it a little bit easier on William. But again, to say that it was really harmless, he was harmless. So what was this, I'm curious, the misunderstanding? So the misunderstanding was actually William having inappropriately touched an 11-year-old girl on multiple occasions over a period of a few months, which I'm not going to get into to any details about it. But the girl was a friend of William's sister, and she would come over to their apartment in Colorado to play with the sister. And apparently that's when the these incidents occurred. I think we need to educate grandpa on the definition of misunderstanding. Yeah, maybe. 
just a little bit. So when he arrived in Connecticut, he opened a farm stand selling organic fruits and vegetables right outside of his grandparents' house. And eventually he got a job in the produce department of a local grocery store, again, Fresh Market. William had made some friends at the store, including a woman named Carrie Bennett. And it seems like they were just friends and Carrie had started bringing him to church services back in 2014. In 2018, so again, jumping forward, William had changed his address from his grandparents' home to the January Center. So again, part of that registering and putting all your changes of dress through, we see that he moved into the January Center, which is a rehabilitation service for sex offenders in Connecticut. So this is a place where he could live, like a residential program? Yes. So it's split up and basically they have one section that's for people that may be in the ending part of their prison sentence and another section that's for probation where you can sort of come and go and you have a little bit more liberty. So when sex offenders are close to their release date, they can be evaluated to assess their recidivism risk. And based on that information towards the end of their sentence or once they're on probation, they can be housed here and they get intensive therapy five or seven times a week. And it's just to try to avoid them going back and doing the same thing over again. Reoffending. Yes. So in September of 2018, while William was under treatment, Carrie had planned to meet with William because she could sense he had something that he wanted to talk about and there was something bothering him. In that discussion, he confessed that he had committed the murder of Melissa Milan four years earlier. Carrie brought him to the pastors of Open Gate Ministries, the church that they had been attending together, and again he confessed to them what he had done. The church group convinced him to turn himself into the police, and he walked into a police station joined by three members of the church and then confessed again to police. And there's actually video that you can find of him. You can't see much, but it's just the security camera of him coming in and speaking to the police right away. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like manna from heaven. You That doesn't probably happen a lot where after so much time, this person walks in and completely confesses. And especially in a case like this where it was completely cold. They had nothing for years. Any sort of evidence or witnesses coming forward, they had no leads for years. And all of a sudden, he comes in and confesses to this. And I'm, I tend to think, just in, again, there's no evidence to this or articles about this, but being that he was in this treatment program, I'm wondering if that's what led him to confess, if part of that treatment and therapy made him realize what he had done and that he couldn't live with himself. Maybe. I know when I used to work in drug and alcohol services, when you talk about the 12 steps, one of the steps is making amends and being open and honest. And I don't know if that's similar what they go through with sex offenses, but in terms of living an honest life, being honest, you know, you have to confront the things that you did. You have to own up to them them or you're always going to have that secret you carry, which is going to weigh you down and burden you. Mm -hmm. So again, we don't know that that's the case. But so the night of the murder, he had been at a therapy group for sex offenders, and he was feeling very lonely when he left. He says that he went onto the trail looking for human contact, whatever that means. I think we know what that means. (laughs) At the time, he was dating someone, but he was scared that she would find out about him being on probation for the sexual assault. As he was driving towards the trail, he spotted Melissa running and drove past her because he found her attractive and he began to get quote mentally aroused he parked his car near the trail to confront her on the path he then started to think about the fact that she was out of his league and that he couldn't have her and he kept getting angrier and more anxious and again this is just from his recounting of what happened he approached her in an unlit spot of the trail and stabbed her once in the chest she put her hands on his chest and pushed away pulling the knife out and she then fell backwards over the guardrail where she 
she would later be discovered. Levert claimed that after he stabbed her, Melissa said, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and then fell silent. After the murder, Levert got in his car and threw the knife out the window on a side street, but he had come back a few days later and got it, disposing of it in a trash compactor at his work. So did you ever find out where this side street was? Because I'm thinking you're going to probably canvas the area and I get it. It's probably very woodsy and there's a lot of land. But I mean, I'd be curious to see how far from the crime scene did he throw the knife that no one found? It. I mean, he was laying there for a few days till he came back. Yeah, I think it was a decent distance. I didn't Google map it. He also led the police to where he had hidden one of the gloves that he had been wearing that night, which still had Melissa's blood on it. He explained that he had tried to throw the gloves into the rafters of a barn in his grandparents' house, but he couldn't get them to stick up in the rafters. It's like when you throw a rope to try to wrap it around something just wouldn't stay. One of the gloves that had fallen back down he threw in the trash, but the other had gotten stuck behind a wall in the barn, so he had left it behind. He was also able to describe what Milan had been wearing that night and gave the police letters that he had written after the murder, confessing to his friends and family, but he had never sent them. He had cleaned the boots that he had been wearing and put them in a Goodwill bin a few months later. So basically the police at this point were just trying to confirm that this person that's actually confessing truly did do this, committed this murder, and they were able to do that because a lot of the details about what she had been wearing and all of this, they had been kept from the public so that they could find out who did this and question them in this way. After he was charged, he waived the right to a probable cause hearing just based on the evidence that was there, but he did plead not guilty, which seems a little odd to me after having confessed, but his lawyer is having him examined by a psychiatrist, and that was the last update is from October 2018, so we're about a year out from that. Uh, we haven't seen any updates on when a trial date is set or what those evaluations have come forward with, but right now we're in sort of a pending stage of his case. And I would imagine that's why he did plead not guilty to try to get the, what what's the word you used? Diminished capacity. Yeah. That would make the only sense to me because again, he gave them the evidence. He confessed. There's DNA that connects him not only to the glove, but the blood on the glove is hers. I mean, it's pretty lamb dunk in my opinion. So I think the only route, you know, his lawyers could take is diminished capacity. You made a good point when we were talking about this before we started recording in terms of his state of mind that night. Right. Because it's one thing to say, I crossed somebody's path and went into a frenzy. It's another thing to have gloves and a knife on your person and then purposely attacking someone. It's It just doesn't link that part of it for me to say, well, it was unexpected and I was anxious and all this. I think he was truly planning on hurting someone. It just happened to be Melissa because because that's who he came across. I agree. I mean, I definitely do. And we've heard that before. In other cases, you think back to the Lori showcase. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that. It's similar because Lisa Michelle Lambert says, oh, we were just going to pull a prank. We were going to cut her hair. We didn't bring scissors. You brought a knife. Mm -hmm. So that's, to me, you were planning something more nefarious than a prank. And in this case, he's got gloves and a knife. He purposely drives past her. He parks his car. He goes to an unlit portion of the path. He's waiting for her. And then he doesn't sexually offend her then. Yeah, which is odd for someone that's already been convicted of sexual assault. Right. I was curious about that. But see, the other part of that, too, might be that even though there were no eyewitnesses to the actual attack, this was a popular path. So there could have been people easily driving or walking by. So maybe he didn't feel that he had the time 
to attack her in that way. And we don't know. And that's only based on his story. We don't know if she fought back. I know I get think to the body. They didn't see any signs of sexual offenses. But did she put up a fight? And this was his way to try to maybe silence her. Mm. You know, and she kind of pulled away from him. Did she push into him? I mean, I think he purposely was out there to hurt her. And it's unfortunate when she pulled away that the knife pulled away. Because I think, I don't know, you always hear about if you get stabbed, leave the knife in. Mm-hmm. Or you get pierced by something, leave it in. Because as soon as you pull it out, you're going to bleed out. Yeah, but who knows? These are never happy stories. We Every time I feel like we finish a story and we're like, oh, now I'm sad. Well, we're talking about true crime. I don't think there is a lot of happy endings in this, but yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. And hopefully we can keep on that and give some updates down the road. Yeah, I'll put a Google alert on. So that way, if anything comes up, you all will be the first to know. That would be great. Um, So just I wanted to touch quickly. So some resources. I got a lot of great articles from the Hartford Current, which is the local newspaper. So there was one, there was one Warren describes a brutal random attack. And then there was a Washington Post article as well titled I Can't Have Her A Slain Jogger's Case Went Cold Then a Sex Offender Went to See His Pastor so clever title so yeah and then Mass Live as well they had some articles in there so thank you to all of my resources there you go and you can find those resources at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com under our show notes so any life lessons Trish don't jog that's it just don't jog <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna go with joke jog don't jog don't jog <laughs> Well, I'm going to follow your rule. I will not jog. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, it's great to be healthy and do healthy things. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she did every, I mean, this was a path that was well lit and well traveled. And it's probably sounds like something she's done a hundred times before. And it really kind of was a blitz attack. She couldn't have prepared for this, even if you have like the mace or the bullhorn or anything like that. Well, with that being said, <laughs> choose another form of exercise. That's right. What other forms? I don't know. What do you mean? What other anywhere. forms of exercise? I don't know. Yoga, swimming, boxing, lifting weight, yeah. Zumba. Do all of that. Do all of that. Take a Krav Maga class. There you go. That way, that if you do decide to run, you're be, somewhat covered. There you go. Like the Israeli military. Yeah, exactly. If you already can't tell, we're recording later in the evening than we usually do. So there have been many missteps in this recording process. But we thank you is for your patience. Is it missteps or is it recording gold? If we ever do a blooper reel, it probably would be recording gold. Someday. Maybe. Or at a live show. If we ever did a live show, they would finally oh see gosh. all the And we mistakes. would have to do it at the e- in the evening because nobody's going to come to a live show at noon. I was thinking 10 a.m. is when I'm really on. But <laughs> so, I don't think anybody's going to buy tickets. We're just going to do matinees. <laughs> 10 a.m. matinees on a Sunday. Everybody in the audience is 65 right. or older. <laughs> With their mimosas and bagels. Yes, that's my dream. Okay, well, thank you all for listening today. We loved having you with us. Again, as we said in the beginning, visit our new website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And until next time. Yes, we want you to be safe, but also remember to be kind. Bye. Bye. Bye.